While I would like to edit the reading so as to deny or just erase or push to the side that part of our story, I cannot. These difficult verses are vital to who we are and what we do as disciples of Christ today. So indulge me. We're going to not push these verses aside. We're going to go further into them. We're going to break them, this whole long passage. It was a long passage for us, church. We're going to break it down together. So if you have a Bible on your phone or the Pew Bible, or you brought one with you, feel free to open it up. We're looking at Exodus 14 and the first two verses. There are actually four, five parts to this story before us, to this reading. And the first part is verses 19 to 20. God's messenger, who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud, or sometimes we hear the pillar of fire, moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. And the cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. The two camps, they didn't come near each other. And this is the first part. So we have two groups of people and actually a third presence. We have the pursuer, Egypt's camp, right? We have the Egyptians. And then we have the pursued, Israel's camp. And then we have, in some versions, the angel. In some versions, God's messenger. The presence of God separating these two camps, all right? So we've got our three persona. And then we're going to go further in. This is verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched his hand out over the sea. The Lord, very present, pushed the sea back by a strong wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right and on their left. And so in this second part, through the hand of Moses, God, a very present God, parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross on dry land. And then it starts getting rough. Our third part of this reading is the next three verses. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and cal I don't say this right. Cavalry. Where is she? There she is. Cav I really have a hard time saying that word. So every time I say it, if you guys could help me say it, it'd be great. Cavalry. I said it wrong again. All right. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into a panic. Verse 25, the Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they wouldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Israelites Uh, The Egyptians followed the Israelites right there onto that dry land. And we hear the Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they wouldn't turn easily. And then we go right into part four. Then the Lord, present again, said to Moses, 
stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, their chariots and their cavalry. So we're going to have like a lesson afterwards. We're going to go through it together, all right? Thank you for helping me out. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it, and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the... Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them into the sea... Not one of them remained. The Israelites, however, walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. So through Moses, God brings the separated Red Sea walls back together, and the Egyptian army is tossed into the sea, and not one of them remained. And the closing piece, sort of the lesson here for us, as the author would have it, but there's a lot going on there. Part 5, verses 30 and 31. The Lord rescued Israel from the Egyptians that day. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the amazing power of the Lord against the Egyptians. The people were in awe of the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The pursued have claimed victory over the pursuer. Truth is, I would love to just skip parts, that part four altogether. Because this is what I see, what I hear when I read the Lord tossed Egyptians into the sea and not one of them remained. I see a slow, sweeping survey of the shore, at the edge of very deathly waters, not waters of emancipation, but deathly waters. The Israelites aren't there. They're sort of behind the camera looking in. All that is visible is the ravages of death and destruction. There are dead Egyptian soldiers and horses and crushed chariots and crushed power and crushed arrogance. Yes, this is what I see, and I can't separate our fundamental story of faith from this panorama of death and destruction. To do so would be at best a denial and at worst a betrayal to the fabric of our Judeo-Christian history. And so now it's up to us, church— to read this passage and own it, and to teach it to our children, as Pastor Mark spoke to last week. To wrestle with this God of emancipation and this God of destruction. And in listening deeply, in listening deeply to this scripture and repeatedly, we can hear a myriad of God's people speaking in and through these verses, and God herself. There's a sidebar to this that I, I want us to just take a little 
travel down, and that is that many folks want to, and I understand it's interesting, study the science of the Red Sea and the geography of the lands. There are books and there's documentaries. There's, it's all over YouTube. You can figure out a whole bunch of stuff. Folks claiming this could have happened or this couldn't have happened. The stars were aligned and the sea did this and meteorological phenomena that might have played a role into this particular story we have. But this, this is not my sermon. This is not my sermon because this is not our Bible. Holy Scripture and the Torah scrolls were not written as scientific history. They're not a geologic puzzle to figure out. To write these verses off slowly as a scientific explanation or not, to make them, well, that could have happened because, or that could never have happened because, I feel forces scripture into a very small box. And it hinders scripture from feeding us today. One scholar writes it like this, and I think this is a good way to think about it. Making such scientific distinctions is an attempt to read the event through the eyes of explanatory suspicion. Whereas the narrative insists on being taken through the eyes of helpless Israel without resources. You see, these Exodus verses expose the author of these verses as a member of a deeply and generationally oppressed class. Although scripture is holy, as Methodists we follow, and I looked this up to make sure, we follow that scripture is written by human hand and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Similar to our patriarch Moses, God works through the author of Exodus too, we trust. But make no mistake, the author of Exodus was human. And as a human in this particular context, he or she wrote from his or her oppressed worldview. Who of us sitting here, who of us sitting here has not celebrated an enemy's defeat? Now, I know most of you. So I know most of you, I've actually probably celebrated with you at times, right? Millican games and various other things. For centuries upon centuries, we have prayed to God to defeat our enemies. And when that happens, then we claim God was with us. And when we claim that, we also claim that God was not with those who lost. Who saw Wonder Woman, that movie that was out recently? Some of you guys, I know you did. Well, it was a really intense, violent, and graphic display of a lot of stuff. But there's some really, really evil characters in that movie. And when that incredibly evil dude, Ludendorff, was killed, there was no way, the way that story was told, there was no way to not be excited. It took way too long. There's no doubt. I could have edited that movie a lot better, I think. It took way too long to kill off the bad guy. But they did it in a way that made us celebrate because that villain was deeply evil. So to enter into this difficult text is to enter into the author's place of oppression. So as I was wrapping my head around that, I thought, I've never been oppressed. I don't know how I'm going to preach on this text because I've never been oppressed. And then I thought, I remembered, I owned, that I never saw an ordained clergy woman until I was 30 years old. And that's oppression. I thought about my friends and family 
who have lived in hiding, afraid to be their whole LGBTQIA selves in the church, in our communities, in their homes, and that's oppression. And then, and then I thought about a simple, embarrassing story of my own. You have to bear with me because it's embarrassing. When I was a freshman in high school, I moved from a very small rural community of about 5,000 people. And that's small. That's about the size of Millican High School. It is, right? That was the t- that's the town I grew It wasn't even a town. It was a village, maybe. I moved from that place to a much bigger town of about 65,000. And that first year in school, in that huge high school, I didn't know the right words to say or the right friends to hang with. I didn't know the right way to have lunch, whether I should bring my lunch or buy it in the cafeteria. I didn't know the right hallway to have my locker or the right classes to take or the clubs or sports. And I definitely did not know the right thing to wear. I didn't talk very much. But I did join one club, and that club was all about volunteering. I signed up to deliver newspapers to the high school teachers. My first day on the job went great. I got there early, and I had my Sharpie, and I wrote the classroom numbers on the papers, and I got them there on time. I felt pretty good. But that first morning, I also got the attention of a special group of girls. And for the rest of my assigned week, this group of girls followed me around the entire school on my delivery route every morning. And their jeers, they started off small, a few taunts here and there, and then their taunts escalated into little balls of spit, balled-up gum flung at my head. And next it moved to tripping me as I left the room, as I went down the stairs. I had some banged-up knees, and my papers would fly everywhere, and it would make me late to homeroom, and then in trouble with the principal. But the worst was actually yet to come. On Friday of that week, for whatever reason, I decided to sport a bright Kelly green skirt with little white sailboats all over it and a white collared polo shirt. And I think, for those of you who lived through the 80s, I think I even had a Bermuda bag as my purse. Thank you, Amanda. Yep. It really, really wasn't cool. That's what you need to know. So sure enough, this group of girls followed me every step of my path that morning, jeered at me and tripped me and threw stuff at me, mocked my skirt. I still, I can hear their voices. But that day took it to a whole new level of mockery and pain. I was utterly humiliated and ashamed, and I just started to cry. I delivered these papers through the hall of the high school just crying. I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go or anyone to talk to. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know the teachers. I didn't speak the lingo, and I didn't know the right way to be. I desperately wanted to fit in and just feel normal. But I didn't, and I wasn't. And it hurt more than I can describe. And I never told anyone. That's oppression. However, I want to be very clear with the church this morning. I am not in any way claiming the voice of the oppressed in this Bible reading. I don't know the personal impact of tyrannical oppression. 
or such an impact on generations of my family and community as expressed in this Exodus narrative. My escapade of being bullied in ninth grade does not give me sudden proximity to the voice of the oppressed Israelite in this story. But, however, it does give me a way into the humanity of it. It does give me a glimpse and a connection to the author and his or her perspective as the once deeply oppressed and now emancipated. Because guess what, church? If I could have figured out a way to have turned the tables on that group of powerful girls, if I could have hidden somehow and tripped them in some horribly embarrassing and reputation-inflicting way, I would have, I think. I definitely thought about it, and those images brought me release and freedom. And I have definitely been impacted by the 2,000-year-old church, and it's only been ordaining women for about 60 of those years. It is from this voice, from this place of pain and oppression, that the verses we don't like very much, it's where they come from. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot driver. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. We don't want to worship a God that would kill anyone. But we do want to know that God protects us from evil. What do we do if that evil is human or takes the form of human oppression? Because we have to recognize that when God created us to be in God's very image, God created the Egyptians, the patriarchs of the church, and that gaggle of girls in Orville H. Platt High School. So what do we do with this story of a vengeful and wrathful God? We own it. We remember it. We listen and we learn from it. We own and remember that the voice of the oppressed is powerful and sometimes often full of wrath and full of righteous anger. And the oppressed may take vengeance on its oppressor from a place of deep, deep pain. It's happening all around us. Make no mistake. Again, let us remember, we don't follow that God wrote the Bible. God wrote it through us and in us and with us. It is our story with God. And this part of the story that we encounter today was not written by the Egyptian oppressor. It was written by the Israelite oppressed. And as such, we must read this massacre of Pharaoh's army through that lens, together with the lens of Jesus' call to love our neighbor. Because if love was the beginning of that story, if love was the beginning of every story, then massacre would not be a part of anyone's story. While we wrestle to own this, this part of our story. We cannot forget it. We must keep retelling. 
with the loss of Egyptian life as an inherent part. Lest we forget that oppression never leads to celebration. It only leads to pain and death and destruction. When one is oppressed, when one of God's children is denied the ability to be their whole selves in whatever form that God created them, some part of God's kingdom will be hurt. And another part of God's image will dim to the point of being extinguished. Church, we must remember and learn and walk as a people of faith and work to uproot systems, whether they be political or socioeconomic, whether they lie in our churches or our schools or our very families, whether they're domestic or foreign. We must walk following a loving God who is neither one of oppression or massacre, but also of both, because we are and have been a people of both oppression and massacre. We must learn to walk with our God who is relying on us to build the kingdom right now, to teach and live lives that encourage and promote equality, justice, and love. Amen.